The truth is out there, dear listener, and I'm merely doing my part to present the things I know. Through audio recordings of phone calls and police transmissions, to the personal reflections of eyewitness testimony, we're going to venture through the supposed impossible and our great search for the truth. Believe or not, that is your choice, but make it wisely, for the world you will see depends on it. The date is March 1st, 2018, and you're listening to Malachi. Listeners, I need your help. This isn't some ploy or creative license. I really do need your help. And if I don't get it soon, more people are going to die. You may have seen the news recently about the death of a young woman and her boyfriend in an upscale New Jersey neighborhood. Both were eviscerated in ways that I can't and wouldn't begin to describe on this show, and currently the suspect is still at large. Now, the police and the media believe they are searching for a man with close ties to both. However, this is not an assumption that I agree with. With the news labels as a single incident, I think what we're all looking at here is something that goes much deeper than a simple crime of passion. I see as the beginning of a serial killer. And if we can't help stop them, there's no telling how many more people may die. The FBI defines a serial killer as someone who murders three or more people, usually in service of normal psychological gratification, with the murders taking place over more than a month and including a significant break or cooling off period in between. What the police believe is a man laying low, I believe is a man who's actually in the middle of his cooling off period. How long that lasts is often debated by law enforcement, but it's been known to last a couple days to several weeks, months, and even years. Such uncertainty makes the clock that we're racing against impossible to know. So unfortunately, we're just going to have to act quickly. So far, here is what's been shared publicly about the case. As of now, there are two known victims, Carla Gregory and Nathan Plum. Both were murdered in Carla's bedroom with the same weapon and each left in an unrecognizable condition. Carla's body was believed to be in better shape than Nathan's, although to what extent that is has not been shared yet by law enforcement. This is no doubt what led the authorities and the media for their crime of passion theory. But bear in mind there are no witnesses to any wrongdoing. There were no signs of forced entry. Neighbors say Carla was quiet and kept to herself. None of them knew who Nathan was or claimed to have ever even seen him before. Carla also lived alone. They had no criminal records, and what friends and family have stated publicly is neither were the type of people to have enemies. Carla hadn't been dating anyone, to the best of anyone's knowledge, and Nathan had been divorced for well over a year. His ex-wife had an alibi for the time the murders were believed to have happened. As it stands, there are no persons of interest. Police have requested that anyone with knowledge of the crimes please contact them immediately. Now that doesn't sound like much in the way of helping bring a killer to justice, but I do have something here that just might. What I have for you, dear listeners, is a piece of evidence that police have in their custody but are refusing to admit to having, let alone releasing publicly. I am told by a source in law enforcement there are details in this evidence that would only be known to the individual or individuals who had been present as the crime was occurring. They believe what they have here is a journal entry written by the killer. It details the events leading up to the murders and gives an unfiltered glimpse into the mind of the murderer himself. My sources leaked this letter to me in its entirety, and I'm going to read it to you now unedited, and unfiltered. 
I do have to caution you, there is some pretty graphic material in here, so listener discretion is advised. And hopefully by the end, you're going to see why I believe this man is a serial killer. <clears throat> Every man has their obsession. That perfect woman who captures them with a glance and a set of legs that go on for miles. Awake, they dream about her as they do sleeping. Nothing compares to the power in that smile. It was the loveliest smile. I see her lying in a folding chair on the front porch, sleeping peacefully as the afternoon sun slowly melts her skin from white alabaster to golden decadence. She smiles for no reason at all beyond the sheer enjoyment of my eyes upon her. They work themselves into a lather of both love and lust, caressing her with all the intent of the promises on my lips. They say love fades over time, but I have loved my Mrs. Hawkins from the moment I saw her. That has never changed. And it never will change. Love, unlike life, is eternal. Every night I lie awake thinking about her. I imagine our tongues pressed together like snakes in a dance. In my dreams I feel the pressure of her thighs squeezing my waist, her moans nipping at my ears. She whispers my name as she arrives at her fold. She says breathless. It was the third night that I tucked her into bed. She hadn't been expecting it, which of course was the point. I watched her through the window gliding up the stairs to her bedroom at the far left of the hall. I noticed she was fond of having a light on while she slept. She preferred electric candles over her lamp. I guess this served the ambiance for romantic and the practicality of not using the real thing while she slept. I waited an hour before slipping into the night and crossing the dude grass to the old oak tree next to her porch. Somewhere nearby a neighbor's dog barked, but I wasn't worried. I could easily be a raccoon scouring for food. I climbed up the tree and carefully pivoted onto the roof, being mindful not to wake my love. The house was a two-story colonial that wheezed with the smoker's lungs in the breeze. I stooped and crawled to the window and waited for a moment in silence. Carefully I rose from my perch to peer through the white satin curtains billowing gently in the breeze. It was then I saw her, perfectly silhouetted by the flickering candlelight. Only her torso was covered by a thin sheet, leaving her legs bare to the cool touch of night. Strands of her auburn hair lie spread across the pillow, like veins carrying her essence. Even sleeping, she was a goddess. The first time I went to tuck her in, I was nearly caught by the morning light. Lights inside many of the neighbors' homes came to life as they arose to start their days, and I quickly hopped down from the roof and disappeared into the last traces of night. I like to think she dreamed of me that night. I like to think she dreams of me most every night. Me and my gentle assurance of love and companionship. She knew and understood me, and I understood her. It was this understanding and patience that helped me get through our dark times. And every couple has dark times. One thing she knew most about me was my jealousy. She enjoyed making me jealous. Everyone she brought over, she'd cast that knowing gaze right at me. There were so many nights I watched with my face pressed against the rain-soaked glass as you entertained some suitor. You'd laugh and flaunt your affections, always being mindful to cast a knowing smile in my direction. How beautiful you are. In a room of darkness, she alone could light it with her radiance. I could light it with my rage. Yet another way in which we are similar. Then one night she brought home a man who was much older than I, and certainly much older than she. He'd made no effort to temper his affections in my presence, even after it became obvious she was uncomfortable by his advances. After watching them go inside, I decided something needed to be done. I had to defend her honor. It's what a good husband would do. Remember the dog I mentioned earlier? The one who'd barked during the first tuck-in? 
I knew the family that owned it. They were decent people, if not careless with their animals. As soon as they had gone inside, the dog had come sniffing at the bushes beneath my window. I went downstairs and opened my door to let it inside. Surprisingly, it came willingly. I patted its head and rubbed its belly. It looked up at me with an expression I immediately understood. Maybe the family had left the gate unlocked. Perhaps they'd even done so on purpose. That would explain those sad eyes. What had this poor thing seen in its journey through town? Why hadn't his owners found him? He was as alone as I was. Kicked out and forgotten. I'd heard the Andersons had gotten a cat a week earlier. A fuzzy gray little thing, barely a year old. Is love really this cheap? The light came on in the bedroom window as I pet the dog. I saw a shape move past the window, blocking out the flickering candlelight. She'd taken him up there. Him. Of all the suitors she'd brought home the toy with me. The old man with the gray sport coat. The man who'd hurt her in front of me. It filled me with such rage. Next, I knew the dog yelped in my grasp and I looked down. My hands had wound their way around its neck. Its head drooped in my hands as the still wet and sticky tongue lie flat against my palms. My heart raced and I let go. The dog collapsed in a heap on the floor, then continued to lie still and silent. The suitor had killed him. I felt the tear stinging my eyes as I ran my hand over its fur, hoping it would raise its head and look at me. I wanted to see the hurt and pain he'd caused reflected back at me, but instead all I saw was nothingness. Big pools of nothing that saw nothing on a sea of nothing. Empty nothingness. This man, and the woman I loved in her bid to have me crave her all the more, had now taken this dog's life. This time she needed to see what she'd done, and the suitor needed to pay for the life he had cost. I went back upstairs and grabbed a garbage bag for the body. Night had already settled over the town, so I didn't worry about being seen. I carried him as I would my wife over the threshold of our home, with his head carefully cradled in the nook of my arms. The man had parked his luxury sedan in the driveway and had stupidly left the passenger side door unlocked. I opened it and slid the body onto the seat, while also removing it from the bag. It didn't sit on the seat right, and as I let go, its body slid to the floor while the head laid propped on the seat cushion. I then closed the door and went to the house to ring the doorbell. It took a few minutes for them to answer, but I had already left. She didn't need to see me for her to know it was me. She'd gone too far, and now she knew it. As I said, every couple has its dark times. For two weeks, she'd slept alone. I forced myself to tuck her in only once in that time. It was difficult yet necessary. She'd also taken to closing her curtains more often and double-checking the doors every night. I knew then she'd learned her lesson. For that, I was able to forgive and move on with my life, and with our lives, or so I thought. Then that bitch brought a new one home. Perhaps she was angry at me for not being more attentive for those weeks. Maybe she was harboring some sort of desperate ploy to get my attention. Well, it worked. It worked very fucking well. She made no attempt to glance at me as she met him at the door. He was younger, probably younger than both of us, and she told him. She fucking told him to double-check his car doors before he came inside. With the flick of his switch, his car blinked and honked, letting me know that she was prepared for me this night. But oh, how wrong she was. I saw them kiss through the downstairs window. I saw her hands go around his neck and his around her waist. My mind took off with images of him lying on top of her. I screamed and punched a hole through my bedroom mirror. The glass shattered into slivers, many of them coated in my blood. I was done. This madness, this game, it had to end. Once and for all, my declaration of love and ownership, our ownership of one another, had to be claimed. So I grabbed a piece of that shattered glass and I stormed down the stairs of my second floor apartment and stepped down in the gentle falling mist. 
across the street and through her yard to the tree I'd climbed so many times on so many nights. As I climbed, I heard the rattling bed springs playing percussion to the symphony of moans escaping her bedroom window. The bitch had her legs spread for him, but she didn't know I was standing there on the roof listening. I listened to the whole thing, from her assurances of his prowess to the wet smacking of their bodies colliding with one another. I even heard her grunt in surprise and the sigh of a young man finishing his business. And now I ran for the window. I hit the glass with my foot extended and moving at full speed. It exploded inward and I nearly tumbled onto the bed next to them. The man screamed and tried to back away from the bed, but I was too fast for him. Before he could mutter a single word, the shard was buried in his throat, and my hand twisting side to side, burrowing deeper and deeper. My eyes were blinded with rage, my hand consumed and operated by fury, and when I was done, there was little left of the man in any semblance of recognition. I then turned to my wife, my beautiful, foolish wife. She'd tried screaming. She even tried going out the window. She tried begging and pleading. What she didn't try, what I can't believe she didn't try, was apologizing. Apologizing for her mistakes. Then telling me she loved me too. I stood beside her waiting. That bitch. That stupid, selfish bitch. Was it fun for you? This never-ending game of bullshit? It took a long time for my rage to calm down. And when it did, she was lying perfectly still on her bed. There was a trail of red oozing down her chest and dribbling onto the sheets beside her. A small river of scarlet was trickling from the corners of her mouth. I was stunned to seeing her like this. I dropped the blade and hurried beside her. There was a long gash made in her chest between her breasts. The blood made no attempt to slow. Horrified, I reached for her and stroked her hair ever so gently, and that's when her head finally moved. She turned and looked at me, looked through me, with eyes reminiscent of standing on the edge of a giant hole and being terrified of falling in. She tried to move her arm but couldn't. Her mouth tried to form words, but they couldn't. I stroked her hair and reassured her. I know, my love, I know. I love you too. Her eyes teared and I wiped them away. She flinched at my touch. My hands were as cold with fear as my heart. For a while she lied there and sobbed, and I did the only thing I could do for her. I lied beside her in our bed and tried to hold her hand in mine. The blood made her skin slippery, so I had to keep grabbing her hand because it kept slipping free. Soon after, she passed away. A casualty of her own fucking games. I didn't stay too long to say goodbye. I never did. I never understood why women like these games of theirs so much. Is it the power they like? Is it the attention? Oh, my Mrs. Hawkins, I miss you so much. Why I can never hold on to the ones I love? I don't know if I'll ever understand why I'm so cursed. You were my third wife, but that in no way means I didn't love you any more or less. But these games, these stupid games, why did you have to kill yourself too? The journal entry was found in a house across the street from Carla's home. The man mentions an apartment, but there wasn't an apartment. The person who lived there was an 80-year-old woman who'd been dead in her bedroom for over a month. Reports indicate she died of natural causes and was not a victim of the murderer, yet that begs the question of how the murderer came to be in that home. Why and how was he able to stay in that home with a decomposing body for over a month? The man who stayed there has not returned since the murders went public. What's more is the attempts to identify and locate him have been unsuccessful. He mentions knowing some of the neighbors, and the Andersons did confirm the missing dog, but none recall a man living in the old woman's home. My source indicates police found evidence of someone staying there, but found no DNA or other indicators that could help identify who this man is. Right now, it's as if he was a ghost. 
Then lastly, did you notice the part where he mentioned the previous marriages? He begs the question whether these were women he was actually married to, or are they earlier victims of a sick and twisted fantasy, such as Carla was? If they are, then that means this man has claimed at least five victims over an unknown period of time. I believe the police know they are dealing with a serial killer. I believe they are withholding the letter for now to work on building a profile in hopes that if he strikes again, they'll find another letter offering even more details that can help identify him. But in closing, I want to again ask you for help, dear listener. We need to work to identify who these other women are that he claims were his wives. Maybe in those stories, there are further clues that can help identify him before the clock runs out on this cooling off period. If you do decide to look into it and you find anything of use, please feel free to send it to listeningtomalachi at mailfence.com. That's listeningtomalachi at mailfence.com. And until next time, dear listeners, stay safe and keep searching for the truth. (coughs) 